Hey listeners, welcome to the Ad Intellect podcast. Today we have with us Komal Shah who's an educational consultant on a mission to transform the world through conscious education. After Komal spent 5 years in the Teach for America program as a middle school educator, she was left wanting more, which is why she attended the USC Marshall School of Business and received her MBA. Today she leverages her passion for children to shift outdated educational paradigms and transform the educational system for the betterment of all children. She recently authored a book Raise Your Hand which focuses on cultivating consciousness within the modern day education system. In this episode I talked to Komal about her journey as an educator, the rigidness of the education system and how can a teacher, parent or even an elder sibling can create a more conscious learning environment for students. So without further ado let's jump straight into the show Hey Komal welcome to the Adam Lake podcast it's indeed a great pleasure to have you on the show Hi Kinshuk it's nice to meet you as well I'm so glad we finally connected Yes I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation I recently read your book Raise Your Hand and it's first of all it's one of the really good books very well written books that I've ever read um and I was also in all the uh, all of the ideas that you have captured in the book about education uh building consci- consciousness into education and everything else that revolves around it. Thank you. It always feels good when someone says that because you just never know what's going to resonate with people, right? I feel like when you're a writer, you have an idea for yourself of why you're writing it, but it's been really awesome to hear from people like you, you know, what worked and what resonated and so yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, great. before we dive into you know the specific topics of the podcast let's start with the journey first because i think it'll be a good starting point for the conversation now you have definitely um explained your journey in detail in the book but if you can you know give a short summary so that it really sets the stage for the conversation also you know at the later part if you can focus on your mba uh, you recently com- completed your mba in 2020 so the the reason i'm asking this is that uh, i i really want to know why after you know 5 years in education you thought mba is a good pivot now to to take your career ahead yeah so i mean first of all I'll say i kind of laugh when i see where i am now because i never thought in a million years i'd be here so uh, that's been kind of awesome as well but i always say that you know when i stepped into the classroom for the first time I I knew I knew this was it and I knew education was what I was meant to do and I I know people are always looking for those moments and I was really lucky that I was able to find that but that was not what I thought I was going to do I was a biology major in undergrad and you know I thought it was going to be pre med 
being Indian, there's a lot of um, conversation about becoming a doctor. And so I thought that that's what I wanted and I never questioned it. And, you know, I, I definitely would say by the end of college, I was really questioning it and going, you know, is this really what I want to do? And I saw a program called Teach for America, where you work in an underserved community for two years. And I'm not kidding. I applied to that within an hour and I had not thought twice about it, had done no research, but I got in. And so that itself changed my life. And I ended up teaching middle school math for five years up in a community called Richmond in California. And it was the most transformative experience of my life. You know, I feel that what I thought life was, was completely shattered and worked with kids who changed my life. And really started to question the education system in a way that I never had before. And, you know, answering what you said, you said five years, why'd you get to go to business school? You know, I left too. I mean, that's not a natural pathway to take, but I would say that one thing that really resonated with me is the Dean of my school actually one time told me, he's like, do you know why this school runs so well? And I was like, no, you know, why do you think so? And he's like, well, it runs like a business. And that just stayed with me. And I didn't know what that meant. But as someone who thought maybe one day I would start my own school, I was like, that's really interesting. You know, I don't know anything about business. I was a bio major. So my fifth year, I was struggling to be in the classroom. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to try to apply and see what happens. And that's really what what happened in a couple months, I applied and got in and that itself was a great experience because I think a lot of times in education, we're missing the business perspective. And the reality is our whole economy is based on these kind of ideologies and strategies. And so I was able to be in at school getting my MBA, but I was thinking about everything through education and trying to understand where were we going wrong. Um, and it was a very, very pivotal experience and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. So yeah, that's kind of where my journey ended in 2020, started my own business, became an author and uh, here we are. <laughs> wow, that's, that's great. That's a very profound story. So Teach for America, um, then you became a teacher, then business school. Um, so what are you currently focusing now uh, when it comes to education, are you still teaching or are you more of like an education consultant? I would definitely say I'm more of a consultant. I'm still doing a lot of work around my book and, you know, kind of working to keep launching it with different editions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a consultant, absolutely. I mean, ideally, I would love to work with teachers and parents about the educational system and ultimately schools on how we can kind of reform it and shift it. But that definitely takes time. And so I'm kind of just taking it step by step. And then I'm actually also doing workshops at conferences, education conferences, and kind of starting to implement some of these strategies and just questioning kind of what we've been doing for so long and, and trying to shift mindsets, basically. So kind of have my foot in different places right now and trying to figure out what sticks. <laughs> great, great. Uh, cool. So let's, let's focus around the book. Um, a couple of things which I really noticed while I was reading it was uh, one, it had a very strong opening. 
which i wasn't mm. expecting although the story was like you know really sad and heart wrenching but i think it instilled in in my mind that what i'm about to read is is uh, you know really important so th- that was that was one thing and the other thing was that the amount of thought that you've put in uh narrating your experiences while teaching mm. um i think it's very difficult to do uh, uh and i think you were yourself very conscious while teaching that you could absorb all these experiences of the students and could share that you know uh in a way that it 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 really engages the reader about you know why is this important and why you know you are stressing so much about consciousness and empathy and other uh, feelings right so that that was really great which you know i could take away from the book um the third one was that it it really brought me back to my school days so whenever mm. you were narrating an experience i was in the back of my mind you know trying to assess that did something similar happen with me did did any mm. variation of that happened with me how did i react and how did i learn from it so uh, i think it was a it was a like it was a good nostalgia to you know go through <laughs> your journey and your students journey um one question komal which has really bugged me in the past and it was constantly there at the back of my mind while i was reading the book and when i was you know preparing for this podcast so i had to ask you this um if you see in the last 10 15 years almost every industry be it um, you know finance banking healthcare manufacturing every industry has gone through cycles of innovation and improvement um to keep up with where we are at where we are now right uh, but if you see education as an industry the curriculum the subjects that we that we still teach and learn everything is almost the same right mm-hmm. um definitely in the last couple of years probably due to the pandemic a lot of technology penetration has been seen in the education with edtech and stuff like that but if you take a macro level of with the way learning happens and way that things are taught within a school environment is more or less the same mm-hmm. um so the my question was that why education or schooling as an industry is so rigid and you know change averse and from your vantage point have you seen in the in these last 5 years some radical mm-hmm. changes or innovations that are happening to transform the education system yeah Well, you just asked a million dollar question. This <laughs> we're all wondering why is the industry not changing? And I think it's a multifaceted answer. I don't think there's just one. And here are the the few takes that I can that, that I can answer. The first is the purpose of what the system was built for, it still works. And I think we need to acknowledge that. So the way the system works for what it was built for and what what it was built for is to make really good workers. and to get kids in this day and age to and through college it works you know we we, we and i'm not shining a light on the socioeconomic differences because there are differences with those who are growing up in schools that maybe are under-resourced and maybe are not allowing them to get to college but on a macro level most schools are able to reach that goal so to have grades and test scores and teach a lesson from the front i mean in many ways it's worked 
because we are seeing the results of people going to college. And so we know that in some respect, it is working for what it was built for. Now, if you think also education is, it's very interesting because it's very legacy based and it is very ingrained for people as this is just something you do. It's a checklist. You know, when I was growing up, I was never really given an option. It was just, you go to school, you do well, because this is what's going to set you up for success. There was no, there was no room to question it. And my parents said, I had to do it. You have to do it too. So that's all they know. And so it gets perpetuated generation over generation because no one is really questioning it. And as we know, in business and in industries, the reason things change is because the demand changes right? That's why the product changes. That's why you start new services because your clients are saying, you're not serving my needs. But in education, who are our clients? There are kids. And you could also argue parents because parents usually are making the choices for the kids, but ultimately the clients are your kids. And we have an interesting dynamic in our society that we don't always give voice and choice to children. We kind of say, we know what's best. And so what happens is you know, even if kids are saying things like, I hate school, I am stressed out, I have so much homework today, we're not really listening. We're kind of saying, well, that's what I had to do. So you got to do it too. So we've kind of allowed it to go on and on. And we can sit here and talk about the political system and the bureaucratics. And, you know, the reality is on an individual level, we struggle to change, right? In our personal lives, we struggle to change all the time. So from a system level, imagine all these people who don't really want to change. And now systematically, of course, things are not going to change unless there's something drastic that's happening. You know, would it change maybe if there are 100 to 200 parents outside of a school demanding something different for their kids? Yeah, things would probably change. But is that happening? You know, that's the question. And so it's been interesting because those are some of the things that I've taken away of why we're not changing a system. Now, if you were to ask me in the past five years, I would kind of narrow in on since the pandemic started, so two years in general, there has been innovation that's happened. And I think the biggest thing, of course, is remote learning. Teachers have had to adapt to a different way of teaching. Schools have had to adapt very differently on kids' needs of what it feels like to adapt at home. So there has been innovation in that way. Now, if you were to ask me, have the public school systems changed the way that they actually, to your point, on a macro level, are really shifting the, the way that they do things? Honestly, probably not. But what I have seen is that people are now changing on more of a secular level. And so you see a lot of like micro schools coming out. You're seeing parents who are having, pairing up with their neighbors and they're having five kids in the backyard and having a teacher come in and teach them lessons that way. That's something that's been happening since the pandemic. There are a lot of schools out there that are super innovative, that they do care about the learning. They do care about community. They are really having the teachers like Montessori, where it's the teachers on the side and really guiding the child and they're not imposing anything on them. Those philosophies are out there. But on an institutional level that we're seeing in most countries, that's not happening, right? You hear a lot alternative schools or, you know, homeschooling. You're hearing these other things that are happening and pockets of it. But the question is, is it happening in the day to day? 
general classrooms? And I think the answer would probably be no, it's not really happening. Yeah, uh, I think it's a very interesting point. Uh, and like remembering from my, my school days, right? I think what you said is that because uh, they, like the demands of parents and the kids never really changed, that never really fueled that innovation uh, streak, right, within the education system. And I think what what's radically different from my other industries is that usually in a school environment, uh, like generally, like uh, a difference of, of opinion is usually suppressed. If somebody is saying, questioning, you know, why should I study this and why can't we have it this way? It's usually suppressed as opposed to any other industry where a difference of opinion is usually celebrated, right? Mm. If you, if you see technology as a, as an industry, somebody who thinks different is really celebrated there, but in a, in a classroom environment, I'm not sure if, you know, we are creating that, that sort of environment. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense um, that a few, few micro changes definitely we are noticing but on, on on the macro level it's 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 still it's still the same um, another another kind of anecdote which which i really remember is that um, whenever uh, like when i was in school right it was at mm-hmm. that intersection point where technology within education was just being introduced so mm we we are having this these smart classes and stuff like that um what it, what it really did was that um now like students had a different way to comprehend stuff it's it was not just a teacher teaching you know one subject a specific way but the uh, students have uh, had a had a different way to uh, you know comprehend what's being taught and they had a different way to explore explore the teaching. So I think that was probably the turning point where technology started really making a difference. But I think overall, if if the way the you know the education is being delivered doesn't change, it won't really make that much of a difference. And if mm-hmm. you know thought process of uh, educators is, is is still same. Uh, probably then also it won't really make a difference, right? Uh, You know, and the reality is, is that educators don't always have a lot of um, choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. You know, curriculum is, is usually imposed by the state and test scores is how teachers are usually evaluated of their kids. And then you also have time constraints. You know, as we know, learning, first of all, learning is happening for every human every day. We, we are learners, naturally. It, it's not confined to a classroom. Now, if we talk about learning within the classroom, we do have to start asking ourselves, if I am teaching a lesson every single day because I need to make sure that we get all of this covered before the test and the state test, then we really have to ask ourselves, can we fully understand each concept in just a day? in just 40 minutes. And the reality is most of us don't. I mean, think about just life. I mean, we we encounter the same lessons over and over again until we're able to fully understand it, right? Yeah. And so it's the same thing with education. I mean, to sit here and say, oh, they didn't understand 
understand this after 40 minutes, I think we really need to ask ourselves, well, should they, you know, like, should they really comprehend how to do this, this theory? Because, and I think teachers do get frustrated. They see their kids losing out, being called, they're not keeping up, they're not smart enough. And, And they know that they are, you know, it's just the way the system is built. It really, it really shines the light on the people who are good at memorization and who are fast at adapting and and integrating. And also many who are very good at getting A's, you know, they're good at it. And I think we really have to ask ourselves, A, is that really learning? And B, what are we actually looking for? Because we know that the most critical thinkers are not always the fast ones. They're the ones that's spending a month on a project to really fully get it, you know? And so when we start asking those questions, we're like, oh, wait, Maybe that is not how it should be, but you know, I will say I never questioned it. I never questioned it until I became a teacher. And so I always put that out there that as a society, we don't really reflect on our education because it's such a check mark on, on our resume. Yeah. And I think because we're, uh, we're going with the flow so much that, as you said, are these 40 minutes enough to understand this concept? Um, uh, probably it's not for everyone, right? Some, someone can understand it in 40 minutes. Somebody can understand four hours. Some might take, you know, four weeks to understand the same thing. So I think uh, because we are, uh, you know, delivering education in a way that, you know, one size fits all, it's, it kind, kinds of gets, gets messy at, at some point of time. And then everybody else has to adapt to that pace, which is quite difficult for the students. Um, we'll take a slight uh, tangent from this conversation and I had some very like fun lighthearted questions reserved for <laughs> uh, for this talk so let's read this as a rapid fire round we'll keep the answers short and sweet okay um, yeah so while preparing for the podcast I read that you grew up in San Diego California and you have been very active with the Indian community out there so I had some questions around that. Okay. Um, yeah. So the first question is, what is one Indian dish that you cannot live without? Oh, oh my gosh. That's so hard. Uh, okay. Uh, Pao Bhaji. Wow. That's great. That's absolutely <laughs> delicious. Um, your, follow, uh, your favorite Bollywood act, movie slash actor, if you are into uh, Bollywood been a long time since I've watched a movie, but I would say Rani Mukherjee and Shah Rukh Khan. Wow. That's, that's great. So you, <laughs> you really haven't watched the latest movies? No. no. So I don't know any of these new people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Um, you, what is your Diwali tradition? Uh, do you do like something special every year or how, how is it like in San Diego? Um, we decorate the house and my whole family. So I have a brother. So it's my mom, dad, me and my brother. So we do pujas usually for the first two days. And I will say when I was growing up, I did, wasn't always bought into it, but mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, I find that tradition to be one of my favorite holidays. And so, yeah, that's what we do wow. every year. Great. Great. Um, so this brings me to the next question. Uh, which book are you currently reading 
uh, and the book that you have recommended the most. Now, this is apart from your own book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good clarification. Um, I am, I have a couple books because I go to the library all the time. So what I'm reading right now, I picked up Atomic Habits and a fiction novel called Clara and the Sun. So we'll see how those two go. What I've recently read are two different ones that I highly recommend. The first one is called Radical Awakening. It's by Dr. Shafali Saberi. Um, she's a very prominent psychologist and, um, and works with conscious parenting. Um, and this book is a lot about how to take control of your own suffering and heal it instead of blaming other people. So it's very radical and very difficult to read. And then the next one was Think Again by Adam Grant that I just read. And it was phenomenal because it talks a lot about unlearning, which is a lot about what I talk in my book. Wow. It is, it is one of the books on my background. I just got it for reading this year. So I hope that that goes well. So thanks for yes, the recommendation. Yes, highly recommend. So good. <laughs> great, great. Um, the last question for, for the rapid fire round is when you're not teaching, consulting, reading, writing, where can one find you? Like, how do you spend your leisure time? Oh, okay. If I'm inside the house, I'm either reading or doing a puzzle and they have to be at least a thousand pieces. If I'm out and about, I would be dancing or, you know, sitting in a park and reading probably or spending time with family and friends. But yeah, kind of all over Great. the place. So you read a lot. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 great. That's great. Cool. So now let's bring our focus back to 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 the topic. Um, probably the most important question uh, I really thought a lot about how to frame this and I'd say it took me a couple of days and, you know, a couple of pages to reread from your book, but I was able to, you know, uh, formulate that. So one, uh, one phrase which really stood out uh, from the whole book was uh, probably, it goes something like this, like instill education with consciousness and emotional learning. I think that's where you have put a lot of emphasis in your book. And mm -hmm. what I could understand was that, uh, you know, at some point while chasing grades, scores, assignments, and deadlines, you forgot, you know, what the primary motive of education was. Um, and it was probably to make sure that the child when exiting the school is a better version of themselves, uh, mm -hmm. not only intellectually, but emotionally as well. Mm -hmm. um, I really love the notion that you stated in the book that over the years we have become, you know, really good at measuring intellectual in intelligence, that is IQ, but we have failed at measuring emotional intelligence. Um, like how good have been, have we been emotionally and how much have we grown uh, uh, to handle emotions? Um, I would like to quote a few words here, which I, I personally felt were really profound uh, from the book. And they go something like this. Millions of children's lives have the potential to shift if schools don't focus solely on academic learning, but the entire being. I think these are the, one of the best lines from the book. And the question I want to ask 
you hear is that from from an educator's point of view, what changes or strategies do you suggest that educators, schools, even parents, uh, you know, put into practice so that we can bring back that humane aspect to education? And mm. do you think it requires like a whole system overhaul or a single educator or parent can you know initiate that change within the classroom itself hmm. so absolutely can happen within the classroom I, I don't want to negate the power that a teacher or anyone has because I saw the shifts in my classroom you know by the fifth year of teaching I taught math which is a subject that a lot of students struggle with or have strong feelings against they either love it yeah or they hate it. And I was the teacher who really wanted to show them that, you know, I was there for them as a human being. And I had a big bulletin board in my classroom that said, how are you feeling today? And it was really about emotional stability. And I integrated meditation into my classroom before we would start every lesson. And I always wanted to show them, I am not here to just see what you do on this test. You know, I, I be here because I want to guide you as a human and that's ultimately why I'm here. And so it can happen in the classroom. And I will say something, it happens in a lot of classrooms. I think a lot of teachers do a phenomenal job of building relationships with their students. They have morning meetings and they have circles and they really try to integrate some of this type of work in there. Now, on a systemic level, we are seeing more and more curriculum coming in for SEL, which is socio-emotional learning or mindfulness. Now, here's the caveat, though. A lot of this is happening supplemental. It's happening in addition to what's already being done. And whenever you put something as in addition to, it does not become a priority. When it is not integrated into the culture of the school, it is not a priority. So to give an example, a, a workplace where they work the workers for 12 to 15 hours per day. And then they say, hey, on Friday, you're going to have a yoga class in the morning. That's great. But is that really supporting and shifting the culture of that workplace? No, they're still working very late hours and are tired and burnt out. And so similarly, we're seeing that in schools. A lot of time it's added on, but it's not actually supporting the culture of the school. So in my opinion, the whole system needs to shift their outlook of what it really means to educate a child. And as we know over and over again, our emotions are important. And you know, the reason why they're important is because we need to learn how to navigate them. You know, we need to understand hey, when I'm feeling this way, how, what does that mean? What are the tools I have to kind of work through that? Not, oh, okay, I feel this way, but I'm just going to suppress it because I don't really know what to, what to work around with this, right? And so I think there are few schools out there that are doing this. It is part of their vision. It's part of what they do. But I truly believe it's something that needs to happen all over. And one argument I will make is I say, you know, systems are made up of people. If we wanted to change, people have to change. And I really stand by that because, you know, I think it does take a change for educators and parents and school leaders who truly be, believe that education is just about the academic learning, you know? Yeah. And when you have thought that for centuries, 
you know, how do you say, go, oh, maybe that education is actually about cultivating the entire being. And of course, then that's hard because if you've never experienced that, you're going, well, I turned out fine. So like, I don't, why do we need to do that? (laughs) So it takes a lot of unlearning to really think about and go, what we're doing is working, but is it actually supporting the child? And if we're seeing a mental health crisis in adults, like what can we do in education to kind of negate some of the things we see as they get older, right? And so I I will stand by that always, um, but I I do think it takes a lot of shifting of mindset to, to get to that place. Yep. Um, that's a, that's a great answer. Something I could relate to the, the example of the yoga uh, lesson that you gave, I think it was same when, when I was in school. So, um, we would have like one yoga class for 30, 45 minutes every week or every two weeks, which, you know, which just 50% of the, uh, of the students could make to other 50%, you know, just uh, wander off because they didn't want to do yoga. So imagine having, you know, a, a yoga class having like once or twice a month and then expecting students to do yoga really well and to instill that into their daily schedules. It was just not possible, right? Um, other, thing, other thing when I was reading the book and I came to uh, realize was that almost all our subjects are revolved around like uh, studies and grades and you know doing well academically but we we probably should have some subjects as well where which really help uh, practically in to like in living a better life so why not we teaching uh, uh, children mindfulness or how to meditate or even cooking right it's 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 an essential skill to survive Uh, so uh, I think definitely probably the mindset change that you're talking about is uh, uh, really important. Um, one question that uh, I wanted to ask you is like when, when you were teaching uh, uh, one or two years back, what was, if you see, you know, a particular student is not doing emotionally I think they're they're having there are some anecdotes in the book as well. But if you can just uh, double down on this, if some student is not doing emotionally uh, well emotionally, how would you um, focus on that student particularly so that they can at least feel a bit better? Um, I mean, I do the best I can with the time I had. That's just the reality, and mm. that breaks my heart. But when you have 30 kids in your classroom and you have a few kids that have needs, it, it's tough, you know? I, so I would say two, two ways that I did it, did it. The first is I had really strong relationships with my students. I was, you know, I'm a very relationship-oriented teacher. I really wanted to get to know them. And so immediately when a kid would come in and they were struggling, I knew because I had a relationship with them. So it would either be, you know, a little small check-in or maybe I would talk to them after class or I would say, hey, what's going on? You know, and maybe I'm like, I'm here if you want to share with me what's happening. So those were, it's the little things, right? It's the, 
hey, wait here for a second, or like, can I talk to you outside for a second? It was those moments where I was able to check in. If it was something that I thought was a a big issue, then obviously I'd go to the counselor and and say, you need to talk to the student. So it just depended. Now, a lot of my students suffered a lot of trauma because of their circumstances. And so it was happening more often than not, to be honest. And I also had to protect my own mental health. (laughs) So it was a balancing act of trying to be there for them as much as I could by also trying to keep the ball rolling. And that's, I think, was really difficult for me. But I also know in that moment was necessary. So I would say that's a part of it. But, you know, I I do struggle with the fact that kids feel that when they feel this way, that they're somehow different. Because the reality is we're all going through something. Yeah. But it's it's who's hiding it and who's showing it. I mean, that's really the only difference. And so I always wanted my classroom to be a place where everyone felt that they could maybe do something yeah. and say it instead of it being like, hey, let me talk to you on the side when that kid now feels isolated and feels like they're weird that they feel this way, which is not the truth. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of the way I did it. I will also just add that I had really shifted the way I taught in my classroom. So by my fifth year of teaching, I had a lot of time myself. Um, the kids kind of ran the classroom um, and they were kind of taking ownership of their own learning. And when you do that, I mean, the teacher has a lot of time. And so those were the the times that I could really focus on individual kids and, you know, take those moments to really support kids who need my, my help versus me being in the front. Because if you're going to be in the front, the reality is you won't be able to, to support their emotional needs. It's very difficult. Yeah, I, I can, uh, I can understand that. And, um, this brings us to the last question. Um, what, what piece of advice would you like to give as an, uh, like, uh, with your experience to an educator, parent, or even a sibling who, who has from their younger, uh, brother or sister in school. And, you know, they are, they're not happy with the way the schooling is going. And they, they think that it might need an update something, you know, they can imbibe in their whole, uh, in their own, like, uh, teaching environment, which can actually I won't say bring the change completely, but initiate the change of consciousness. Um, and I, I would also, one story which uh, uh, really touched me was that, which you just just told, uh, told right, that uh, you, I mean, you, it was not very easy for you to, you know, um, help everybody who is going through a tough time at school. And mm-hmm. you also took support of uh, yoga and meditation mm-hmm. in, in a way to, you know, balance yourself so that you can give out the best to the students. So if you can just touch base on that as well, that experience as well, I think that'll be great. Yeah, I mean, the advice I would give to anyone right away is say, every child has a gift, everyone. And so if they are not doing well in school, I think it's time to really reevaluate, is it the kid or is it the system? Because those are two very different things. And really trying to understand, you know, if the kid is creative, I mean, use it, you know, cultivate it, make it known that that's okay. I think a lot of times we say, well, that's not important. 
you know, or you still need to do well in math and science. Like that's not how you're going to be successful. And I, I really hope that we can start breaking out of those ideas. And I know a lot of parents who are, and I'm very proud of them for doing that. And I think that's super important. So as a parent, I think it's really sitting down and asking yourself, what do I want for my child? You know, what do I want for them? Okay. What does success look like for me, for my child? What does success look like what, where my child know my child feels successful? What will that look like? What will that feel like? And really focus on that because society, your neighbors, the world is going to pressure you that your child needs to be a certain way. But I hope that we can really ask ourselves what it means to truly be successful because it can look very different than how we've said it. So that's, that's for, from the parent perspective for the teacher, I would say, is there a way then you can make it more about the kids in your classroom? Is there a way? And there's always a way. Um, is there a way that you can sit in the back more? Is there a way where you don't have to have your voice be the biggest voice in the room for the entire time they're there? Is there a way that they can be excited about their learning? Because when they're seen and they're heard, that's actually when we're cultivating more of the entire being, right? If, if you're having your kids students come in and sit in a rows and listen to you and take down notes. It is not learning. And I will say that over and over again, that is not learning. So we need to stop that. <laughs> and I think as an educator, it's really important to ask yourself, how can I reframe the power dynamic in this classroom? Yeah. And in terms of just yoga and meditation, you know, I was always really big on not doing it in my classroom until I integrated into my own life. And that's something always, I will always practice what I preach. <laughs> um, so once I was integrating it and I was seeing, it was just shifting things in my classroom. I mean, I would come into class and kids would say, Michelle, you're just more calm now. You know, you're not, you're not yelling or you're not irritated or annoyed. And I was like, yeah, because I do this practice in my own life and I just feel more present with you all. And I'm more here for you all. And after I started doing that, I said, okay, well, I think I'm ready to now teach this and share it, you know? And so I would invite it. I wouldn't impose it. I would invite it with my kids. I would tell them, you know, we're going to take a moment of silence. And if you feel uncomfortable, you can put your head down, you can keep it up. I really wanted to make it welcoming. And, you know, it's so funny because I, I visit my students, you know, every year after I've left the classroom and, you know, they'll always be like, Misha, breathe, breathe, you know, and I'm like, okay, I think I instilled something in them because now they understand the power of the breath. But, you know, I think it's so crucial and critical. However, if we haven't done it in our own lives, it's hard for us to see the importance and significance of it. It's just the reality. Um, and so that's just something to keep in mind, though. I would I would wish upon everyone to be able to share that with children, but you you just it, it may not be for everyone. <laughs> wow, uh, that's that's great. Um, one last question before we wrap up. Uh, I really wanted to ask you because the the audience of this podcast is really young. So we have mm. a lot of young listeners. If somebody is, uh, it's, is very early in their careers or probably, you know, uh, just started out their career and want to, is thinking of pivoting into teaching, uh, not only, you know, uh, high school, but probably university as well. 
what advice or what sort of um why should they do that uh, according to you like from your experience mm you know i would just say whenever in life you feel called to something you have to take the risk and do it and when we take risks in life and do things that maybe our parents or our families or people in society don't understand the one thing i will always tell young people is do it anyways because yeah. your own fulfillment ultimately is is your truth and that's your happiness and you are not here to fulfill other people's needs you're here to fulfill your own i will say that the reality of teaching is you're not financially compensated as you would be in other things so be smart you know figure out okay if i do this then how will i support myself in other ways but if you feel called to guide children you really believe in work in building relationships you thrive on that and maybe you feel that you were in a schooling system that didn't support you but now you want to give that change to to children and the new generation then i would say go make that happen because those 5 years were the hardest years of my life but they were also the best years of my life and so it's going to be both <laughs> great i think it's very profound uh, i personally have this goal to at some stage in my career probably pivot to teaching in mm -hmm. any way which i can full time part time uh, because i think teaching is probably one of the best ways to give back uh, to society mm -hmm. what society has given you probably so um yeah i think i think i think that'll be great so i think it's a good good point to end the conversation uh thanks for your time komal it was really a pleasure to talk to you um and again uh, congratulations on your book uh, i wish you best of luck and more success ahead yeah thank you so much and i will just tell your listeners that um i'm on linkedin and so feel free to connect and if you have questions or follow up questions i'm always happy to engage and and start that conversation perfect yeah the link to your book and also your linkedin would be in the show notes below so that audience can access it really easily amazing all right great hey listeners thank you for tuning in to add intellect the contact details of the guest and any additional relevant links are available in the show notes below we'd love to hear what you think about the podcast so please write to us on @intellect@gmail.com Until next time peace